Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and to ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Ben Fern, I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Paul Sheridan. You okay, Ben? I'm good, thanks. Had a nice trip, just got back from. Where have you been? Come on, t- tell our listener where you've been. So I was meant to be going to the Holy Land to Israel, obviously. You were. <laughs> Events have said otherwise, but um, I went to Rome. Oh, did you? And I dropped a clanger because I could have met up with Father Grant Naylor, who's very much a friend of the podcast. Very much a friend. I only found out after he'd already left that we were there at the same time. He could have taken you into places that you couldn't get to. I know. And I also failed my mission to get the Pope on the on the podcast. Is he declined then? Um, I didn't even get to ask him. Oh, I was there the same day as him, but not the same time. Oh, Ben, Ben, Ben. You could have got on the balcony, couldn't you, though? Didn't you think? Didn't go? Yeah. That would have been great. He, you could consider him a friend of the podcast. I, I think so. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. So I apologise that it was a fruitful trip, but not fruitful enough. Fantastic. We, there was also a danger that there might have been a dog in the room today. I, I sort of wondered if there may have been, because our guest has got a, a, a very long-standing association with dogs. I have indeed. You love a dog, don't you? I love a dog. What's the name of the dog you've got at the moment, Chris? He's called Mackie. Mackie. Mm-hmm. And he's a black Labrador, three-year-old. Oh, black labs are so cute. They are <laughs> adorable. We I'm would never have got here. the podcast done <laughs> if Chris had bought a black lab in the room. We'd never have started. No, but it would have been amazing. <laughs> we need like a spin-off podcast because we've got Aslan, who's yeah. already featured. Because and their dogs. Yes. Oh, why not? Well, Clergy see... and their dogs, perhaps. That might be better than Vicks. As long as we don't go too partridge with the title. I think that could yeah, be. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, we could find a real great partridge title, couldn't we, for that? Yeah. yeah. Sadly, could... I can't say that Mackie is my dog. He belongs to Support Dogs of Sheffield. Uh, John and I are just foster carers for them. So How long do you keep the dogs for? How long's a piece of string? Depends well, how, long they, long. How, how long do they need us to have the dog. It'll depend on the dog and yeah. its needs uh, and why we've got him. Right. What a um, great initiative, though. Because so, uh, oh. when I came to your house, you had a dog called Bruce. I did, yes. yes. Who was, who's now moved on from your care to a yes. full-time home, is that right? He has, that's right, yeah. yes. Sadly, Bruce didn't make it through his advanced training. A bit like me, really. Um, yeah, pro- quite possibly, yes, yes. Much too bouncy. <laughs> <laughs> for support. That's just a podcast training as well. <laughs> oh, I was talking about Paul. <laughs> yeah, but he's gone on to a full-time home. He has. So he and his new owner are over the moon. They knew each other well and uh, two very happy people and dog. That's great, isn't it? You mentioned obviously how long's a piece of string for how long, but yeah. on average, roughly. It really depends. I mean, when we first started uh, with support dogs, we used to have the ones that had come in from rehoming. And so it would usually be six or eight weeks while they were undergoing assessments as to their suitability. Uh, But more recently, uh, support dogs have started a puppy training program. And we've tended to have the ones that are a little bit um, further on in the training, often into advanced training or just before that period, um, but needing a little bit of extra input for whatever reason. Uh, which is the case with Mackie. Uh, he has some issues um, with anxiety and you know strange places, strange noises, a few things that need ironing out if he's going to become a support dog. So that's our job under the guidance of his trainer to work with him on these issues. And he just lives with us as a pet dog, which is tough when he goes because it could be several months. 
could be six months. You go touch, know. yeah, you go touch them very quickly, even you? after six weeks. Yeah, after six minutes, I think. Well, yes, maybe. yes, very probably. Yes, <laughs> yes. I think it'd be good to introduce our guest because we've already started, haven't we? <laughs> yes, before I go off on a big <laughs> yeah, tangent. Yeah, about yeah, dogs, yeah. yeah. Just come back from the Black Labradors. So, our guest today is the Reverend Christine or Chris Lowe. Uh, Christine was born in Cornwall, uh, married for 54 years to John, uh, a retired teacher, and they have two children. Chris was originally trained as an infant teacher, uh, but has taught all age groups from under fives to adults. She was an English teacher and year, uh, head of year at a comprehensive school in North Devon. Chris was ordained in the Diocese of Exeter in 1999 and served a title in the Torridge Estuary Team Ministry. Not easy to say at times. There must be an acronym for that, I should think. We never came up with one. Oh, right, okay. During this period, she was also chaplain to the Sea Cadets at TS, TS Revenge in Biddeford. In 2004, she became priest in charge of two small parishes, Thornton in Lonsdale and Burton in Lonsdale in the Ucross Deanery in the north of the Diocese of Bradford. In 2009, she became mission priest, a bishop's appointment in the parishes of Eldwick and Gilstead. This isn't going to be easy with all these names. These are amazing names, aren't they? They are, aren't they? The Yorkshire Dales is like this, yeah? Well, I tell you what, let me take you to Cornwall and then you really will have problems. Yes, I was very kind. I didn't write down the name of the village in which I grew up. Which was? Tyberdeath. Yeah. Well, I'm from South Wales, so I might even trump that. Oh, you would manage it. You would manage it. Go to Welsh and you'll be there. (laughs) Throughout her ministry, Chris has worked ecumenically wherever possible and forged strong links with churches of other denominations. On to page two. Chris and John... (laughs) Chris and John also have a strong commitment to the healing ministry in which they've both been involved for about 40 years. They are members of the International Order of St. Luke the Physician, which we will come on to definitely shortly. Since retirement, in inverted commas, Chris has become more involved with the Soroptimist International, something that I'd never heard of, and again we will come on to, a women's service organisation dedicated to empowering, enabling and educating women worldwide. She She and John are also foster carers for Support Dogs of Sheffield, which trains assistant dogs. More recently, in 2022, she published her first book, which is on the desk in front of us, and it's called Shattering Glass Ceilings, No Obstacle Too Great for God's Enabling Power, which chronicles her healing from MS and her journey towards ordination. Chris, it's lovely to see you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for coming into Church House to talk to us. Ah, well, I've been enjoying your podcast, so it's a real privilege to uh, be one of your guests. Oh, thank you so much. You're so kind. You've been very kind about it on the number of times that we've spoken or emailed, so thank you very much. We'll send the cheque in the post. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, all donations gratefully received. After all, I am retired. (laughs) So you never actually had a parish in Sheffield. No. You came to Sheffield uh, post-retirement. Yes. Again, in inverted commas, I understand that. Yes. So what brought you from the the beautiful Yorkshire Dales, having come from beautiful Cornwall, what brought you into Sheffield? Well, actually, it was from beautiful North Devon to the beautiful North Yorkshire Dales. And here I'm going to lose all your readers for you, or or hearers for you, because I'm sorry, folks, but I know you think that Yorkshire is God's own country. You've got it wrong. It's Cornwall. Or Derbyshire, I'd say, but... (laughs) Ah, uh, no, 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 we're going to fall right there. But yes, we were, we were in North Devon for 31 years, um, but our daughter married a Yorkshireman. So it's all our son-in-law's fault. We keep telling him. Yes, 
And now, she, I think, they had a daughter. Yeah, I think you told me that you didn't realise that the Yorkshire Dales were so far exactly, yes. from now, where your daughter was. Did we have to discuss that, really? My <laughs> failings in geography. Yes, this is a standing joke with everyone who knows us. So where were they, your daughter and her? Sheffield. Okay, and you went to... Two the... and a half hours from here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's closer than five and a half. I mean, you you sort of think Yorkshire must be close, everywhere must be close to each other, but it's no. really not, is it? Not, not at all. No. Not at all. So tell us a little bit about your time as a rural parish priest. That must have been, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, Harriet's country or yeah. that's the sort of yeah. stories that you can out about. Did you enjoy that time? Was it, it similar, do you think, to Devon in just yes. the fact it was a rural community? very, very similar. And I absolutely loved it. All it missed was the sea. Yeah, everything else. But the people. Beautiful churches. Yeah, and I was so blessed because there I was, a rookie vicar in my early 50s. And um, I had the most wonderful, wise, loving church wardens to work with. And there are a lot of vicars who can't say that. No, that is true. I'm a church warden. Um, Oh, well, there we go. Uh, But they were just wonderful. And I loved it there. I loved the parishes. I loved the people. Um. And I think I would have stayed, probably if I'd had the choice, I would have stayed to retirement. But it was a priest in charge position and they were looking at reordering and so on. And the bishop asked me to go and be mission priest at Eldwick and Gilstead, Mm. which I also loved. It was entirely different, of course, because I wasn't a vicar. I had none of the stuff a vicar has to deal with. I was there to take the church to the people. And what did that entail for you? Well, it really, I had a complete blank sheet. I was, like a pioneer I could mission, make, really. Yeah, but as you would call a pioneer minister these days, I guess, I was told I could do what I thought was appropriate. It was um, about connecting with these people who... There'd been a huge uh, new development between the two villages, um, massive amount of houses, very little infrastructure. Um, and so talked to people saw what people needed. The very first project I set up was a drop-in for coffee and chat in the church itself. Um, And that's still going. And then there were all sorts of things with the schools. I worked with my two colleagues, um, the Methodist minister and the Baptist minister, and we set up um, a project with the schools where three times a year we would have uh, pupils come with the teachers and we followed um, a programme which was created by, I've forgotten now, one of the big organisations um, that does mission and outreach. And uh, it was called Fast Forward to Christmas, Fast Forward to Easter, <clears throat> Rewind to Christmas, Rewind to Easter, sorry, and Fast Forward. Um, and so the first two were obvious, talking about Christmas and Easter and their meanings. And the other one was for youngsters going on to secondary school last uh, few weeks in primary and looking at the story of Peter, choices, challenges, and so on. Um, And we started off with one primary school. By the time I left, uh, all the primary schools in the area had signed up to it, and we were having to run it over two days. It was a half-day session, so we were running four sessions to fit everyone in. One of the questions we ask guests, especially when the members of clergy, is about the sort of parish profile of the area where mm. they served. So what were some of the, the main needs of the area where you served? There were more sheep than people. That's a good stat. <laughs> <laughs> That's how rural it was. So 
Thornton, which is the older of the two parishes, the original parish there, because uh, Burton, I think, if I've got it, my memory serves me correctly, was more of a Victorian one. Um, Thornton uh, had lots of scattered uh, farms and um, just just a few very small groups of houses and so on, hamlets. And so it was a, by the time I got there was a very, very tiny congregation. They were facing possible closure because they were so small, but they grew and they were fantastic. Whatever daft idea I came up with, they would give it a go. And you mentioned it was obviously a pioneer role, almost a blank canvas of... I know, that's at, that's at um, Eldwick and Gilstead. That's when I was mission priest, not right, when yeah. I was vicar. Um, I was That was just a straight vicar role with the add-on um, time heading up the work with young people and children across the, the Ucross deanery. Did you have any sort of a rough idea of what you wanted to achieve when you started out, or it was a, a sort of see how we go as we sort of go along? Well, when I, when I started out... Um, in ordination or started out as a vicar at that particular location? I'd say both, but I think both, as a vicar both. initially. As a vicar that. in that location. Um, well, you know, uh, I'd looked at their wish list, which was the usual Archangel Gabriel Plus, um, which I certainly didn't fit. But uh, there were a lot of things there where they'd spoken about wanting to develop some work with children and families, the healing ministry, all the things that, that sparked in me. Um, were were the things that they were talking about, and I just wanted to pick up on those and explore them and develop them wherever possible with the community. Part of I think looking at your bio and talking to you in the past and reading the stuff that you've written, it's been very important to you to move to work across denominations. Yes. To not just get stuck into this is I'm a parish priest or I'm in the Church of England. This is what we do mm. to work across that. Was that something that formed in you right from the start of your Christian walk, or was that something that evolved in you later as you saw the, the need for that? I got into terrible trouble, nothing unusual, with my grandmother who brought me up um, when I was about 14 because uh, our youth group, our Church of England youth group in the village, joined with the Methodist youth group to do a service which we held at the Methodist church, and my grandmother was horrified that I was even going into the Methodist church. Who would do that? <laughs> well, Methodist in the room. Um, so, so uh, obviously, this is, you know, we're talking 60 years ago now. Um, and I was horrified. And I can't remember exactly what my reply was at the time, but basically it was, I'm, I, you know, this is something I really am going to do. I think, you know, we're all worshipping God. We're all, yeah. let's get together. And from then on, all throughout my time um, as a curate, we had within the um, team ministry, we had a local ecumenical uh, project in which I also served. So uh, I was used to it from there. Living in the villages, if you want, if you're a vicar with a couple of parishes, no administrator, no assistance whatsoever, um, then you have to be prepared to work with other people if you want to do more than take services and visit the sick. Yeah. And so uh, luckily there was a Methodist minister who arrived at the same time as I did who had the same kind of commitments I did to children and young people and to the healing ministry. God obviously knew what he was doing when he brought us both to that area. 
and we worked together extensively on all kinds of projects. So, so, from, so from a very early age, that ecumenical approach has been something sort yeah, of key to your ministry. It has, without me really realising it. Mm. Now, it's, uh, it's interesting, is it? Because from my experience, we we had periods in my early Christian days where we didn't move across denominations at all. Yeah, uh, I was in a, a house church movement at that time, and then I think the moment that we did, it changed the spiritual temperature in that area, mm. but it also changed the people that were there. Mm. And in fact, often it was the congregations that were very happy to meet together. In fact, you know, lots of us in a small town mm. had friends that were in different churches or we'd married across churches. It was quite often, dare I say, at ministry level that that became more problematic. Yeah. But the congregations very rarely had an issue with it because they recognized, as you say, here we are worshiping together. Mm. I, I was at Songs of Praise at the... Um, City Hall the other night for the recording for the Christmas and New Year service and it's a classic moment of Christians from all denominations yeah. stood in a room singing Thine Be the Glory or whatever it's it's just a great great moment and isn't that how it should be well it's going to be uh, how it's going to be you know I mean if you <laughs> if you want to turn on sport and watch that on television I'll leave the room and go and do something else um, but there'll be other things that we'd enjoy doing together yeah, and right. it's the same with yeah, faith we absolutely. we love god we love our lord um we have different ways of approaching our worship and 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 how we live that out but fundamentally we're all his children and we're all loving and serving him as best we can so why shouldn't we work together why shouldn't we be a united face um of christianity we had that at church on sunday actually during the sermon it was focusing on communion and the Eucharist mm. and the preacher made a really good point out to you saying if you think about different denominations approaches to communion mm. they're very different but actually would any of them say it's not important no they'd all agree yes. it's a very important part of faith and yes. that's yes that's what the focus should be on that what's sort of uniting and what you've got in common rather than focusing on differences yes it's funny funny you should say that actually because I really experienced that um when I was growing up ours was a very middle of the road kind of church uh but when i was ordained as a curate um our mother church in the team was very high anglo-catholic as were a couple of the others and then we had a whole variety um along the line you know different lines from there so i had to learn how to be an anglo-catholic priest for communion which was i was horrified at, to start with and thinking how am i going to cope with this but do you know, it was so deeply spiritual. We had a wonderful training incumbent and he really explained to us why all these different bits were happening and all this, you know, the ringing of the bells and, and all that sort of thing, what its significance was. And once I understood that, I, I suppose partly being an English teacher, you know, and symbolism and all that kind of thing, it really meant something to me. And I actually quite missed it when I became a vicar and I was back to more middle-of-the-road Anglicanism. So, uh, uh, and it's been interesting in more recent times because the church where we worship in New Zealand and where I serve when we're out there is much higher. It's not quite as high as the one where I was curate, but it's quite high. Um, it processes the gospel and we have robed clergy and, and so on. Uh, and then I come back to England and it's much more evangelical and and you know, very rarely any robes anywhere in sight and and so forth. So uh, it's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, and I think 
that I know when we've spoken to a number of people that have been through training, through ordination and so on, and being placed in different streams that were within the, the C of E in particular, uh, that's been a great moment for some of them because it has opened their eyes to actually, we all, all are actually doing in the same direction. We all do want the best in the best way that we can find, following Jesus in the best way we can find. Absolutely. And I think that's yeah. one of the, yeah. even though we might knock it sometimes in our moments, this actually is a strength within the Church of England that we can allow so. such diversity. Now, having said all of that, I know that this sort of ecumenical background has meant that you've been involved in a number of other things outside of your priestly yes. duties. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a couple of long names here. So I'm gonna, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna hold up this piece of paper, okay. <clears throat> Chris has become more involved with the Soroptimist International. Come on. Soroptimist International, yes. Any ladies out there, if you've got any time and commitment, come and join us in Sheffield because uh, we need you. We're a women's service organization. Soroptimist. Soroptimist, best of sisters. Okay. Sorrow, sisters, opti, optimi. Great. Best, best of sisters. Best and of that's sisters. what we hope to be because our whole ethos is about helping women and girls right across the world. So we work locally, nationally, and internationally. We are a voice for women. We actually have a seat on United Nations for women's affairs, and we are able to speak there. Terrifying thought. Have you ever seen a Sir Optimist in full flow on some injustice concerning women? It is a frightening sight. Uh, so, uh, yes, we are not simply ladies who lunch. Don't come join us if you just want ladies who lunch. Not we, the mother's union then. I'm no, sorry to anyone out there. There is some, I may have gone now off. Now I'm going to I'm going to pull you down on that. Right. I hoped you would. I have been a proud member of mother's union for very much of my Christian life. I'm not currently active there because I'm I'm so busy with other things. But we have a lot to thank mother's union for. I know you know for some people it's a bit of a joke and a lot of old ladies taking tea these days. But that's not what's Mother's Union's really about. Um, and certainly when I was out in, um, our, our Diocese of Bradford was was twinned with Sudan, with what was Northern Sudan before partition. And I went out for three weeks with two colleagues to do some research um, for projects we were going to do that were to do with education. And the church out there is heavily reliant. If they didn't have their Mother's Union, they wouldn't function. It's the mother's union that keeps everything going and does the teaching and all sorts of other things. Um, so, yeah, mother's union, great, but Sir Optimist International, greater. And that's a local branch? <laughs> this is the local, yes. We have two, actually, in Sheffield. Um, she uh, SR Sheffield uh, is one of the first um, clubs in England, so it's over 90 years old now. And many years ago now, it got quite large, and so it created a daughter club, which is SI Hallamshire. Right. But, ladies and gentlemen, come join me at SI Sheffield. Okay. Um, how often well, you... Ladies, not gentlemen, you're not say, allowed in. How often... <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> and how often do you meet and... We meet um, once a month uh, for a business meeting where we do our planning and so on for the various projects we're involved in. And then uh, another day, another evening, in fact, it was last evening, we have a supper meeting with a speaker. And so those are the two main meetings each month. And then there'll be other 
meetings and so on according to what we're involved in and what we're doing because we've always got projects on. Um, so it can be advocating for education for women and girls in places like Afghanistan. Um, it can be uh, talking with the government and other agencies about uh, things like modern slavery because, of course, that the major people affected are women and girls. It does affect boys and men, but most people who are enslaved are women and girls. And it's something that we've been banging on about long before it became a topic generally. Um, we used to run conferences through SIAMS, our, our um, Sir Optimist International of Yorkshire Against Modern Slavery. Our group ran conferences, um, drew together various agencies who didn't seem to know what the other agencies were doing and uh, have worked extensively to highlight what's going on and, and you know, the awful fate that some people have through modern slavery. And if people want to get in touch, how do they get in touch with you about that? Well, you can go on our website, website so that's yeah. SI Sheffield. Um, and if you want to know more about Sir Optimist wide, widely, we come under what is called SIGBI, which is Sir Optimist International of Great Britain and Ireland. And if you put that into a search engine, you'll come up with it. But just put in SI Sheffield or Sir Optimist International of Sheffield and you'll find us. That's Failing that, give me a call. <laughs> that's a huge breadth of really important issues, both locally and internationally. It is. In terms of what you discuss, so you said monthly meetings, mm. is that dictated by what's, what current events are or do you sort of rotate? So one month you might think we'll look at local issues next month. No, no, because there are things going on all the time. So, uh, for example, in yeah, every club is different in, in, in what they're doing. Locally, our club goes, has an ongoing relationship with uh, Wind Gardens in um, Hillsborough, which is or Middlewood, which is um, something I've been involved in for many, many years. And so we will fundraise and help out and do various things with and for them. Um, another thing we do is we support the women's refuges in Sheffield in all sorts of practical ways. Uh, have you heard of the Snowdrop Project? Yes, yes. Well, we were involved with them almost from their birth. Uh, uh, know Lara very well indeed. Sorry that she's not there with them anymore, but uh, things change and move on. She's done a fantastic job. Uh, so we were very involved from, you know, painting and decorating houses. Those of us who were fit and able to do that, to raising funds, to doing all kinds of things with them. Uh, uh Mothers in Need is another of our ongoing charities. In fact, we had one of their executive members with us last night uh, to just update us at our supper meeting. And we we had um, a spa evening raising funds, you know, towards that as well from Temple Spa, uh, which was a great evening. Um, so uh, those are things that, that are ongoing and we might be doing different things around that. At the moment, we're, we're working on oranging Sheffield. So I'm looking to, to you here to, over this next month, to wear orange in support of United Nations um, project to raise awareness about the abuse of women, domestic abuse and violence and bringing an end to that. And so we have monthly coffee meetings on the 25th of each month uh, in different parts of Sheffield. We'll be at the cathedral in January. 
And we all go and we wear orange and take our banner and have leaflets to raise awareness. Um, so it, it's all sorts of different things, raising awareness, doing practical things, um, and so forth. It's really important that we celebrate this activism, I think, because yeah. uh, issues facing women and women's rights and um, problems that women face, it can, not that it goes under the radar, but I think too often in society we can think, progress has been achieved or it almost yeah. links back to what we were talking about with Anissa about um about racism thinking we've sort of how somehow conquered it when we have and there's still so yeah. much work to be done yeah. I think that's very much the same with women's issues it too. really her, her podcast really rang bells for me and and yes it that was fabulous wasn't it well she's a fantastic speaker she, she a, a wonderful, great wonderful person yeah yeah I think it's time we come on to your story certainly around around your book and your health issues and, and the healing that ties into that. Mm -hmm. So where should we start? Should we start with uh, the Order of St. Luke, yes. the physician? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, and then mm. please, Chris, just drift into then your story around that and, and, okay. and why you ended up coming to write this book. Okay, then. Um, well, the International Order of St. Luke, the physician, which is just OSL, is what we usually refer to it as, because it's a bit of a mouthful. We'll call it OSL. OSL, that, that good for you? So um, the OSL came into being in the 50s, and uh, it was a couple of clergy uh, men who, who brought it into being, and the whole purpose was to bring the healing ministry back into our churches, because you're far too young, Ben, to know this, of course, but Paul might just remember <laughs> Um, okay, boomers. Back in those, <laughs> yeah, the boomers are in the Back room. in those days, back in those days, um, very few churches had a healing ministry. And if people wanted any kind of healing ministry, sadly, they were going to places like Seroptimus. Uh, Seroptimus, help! <laughs> going to places like spiritualists' <laughs> churches, you know? And so um, the whole idea of OSL is to encourage our churches to develop a Christian healing ministry. That's the, the whole reason for its existence. And when you say our churches... We're ecumenical. Ecumenical. Yes, oh, yeah. we work ecumenically, yes. So our current national director is a, a United Reformed Church minister. Um, I, I have been national director for five years, and that was uh, obviously as an Anglican, and we've had all denominations at different times so uh and you do and they do would do conferences yeah. and visit churches to talk about the, yes. the healing yes. ministry yes. and just encourage people yes and where necessary we will we will go in and train teams um do some teaching in advance because um i'm very again the old teacher coming out in me i guess i'm i'm very hot on churches having some real teaching about the healing ministry that way people don't end get end up getting hurt and upset because someone they've been praying for and ministering to isn't healed as they expect yeah. um and so uh there's real teaching needed there that's really important in it that is. moment isn't it, it? Is, yes. the whole you know some of us lived through the charismatic movements mm, of the of exactly. the 80s which had fantastic impact yes. and also for some of us not such great moments terrible damage actually yes. let's be blunt on yeah, okay, this blunt. terrible terrible damage, terrible damage <laughs> in some and, cases. and so it's really important that around that very sensitive ministry 
there is is a safety net of teaching and comfort and grace yes. around it. There yes. isn't a silver bullet here, isn't it? No. To kind of phrase, no. there's a there's a God who heals undoubtedly. Yes. Yeah. But as you've just said very sensitively, it doesn't always heal in the way that we want yeah. or expect or would like to see. And of course, being human, we forget that the greatest healing of all is death. Yes. Because that's the gate to eternal life. Yes, great. So do you go into all sorts of churches. Mm-hmm. Is there any link into healing on the streets? or um, Not as such, although I have worked with oh, healing course, on the yeah. streets when I was in Bradford. I was part of the team there. Right. And um, for a short time before we started going out to New Zealand every six months um, here in, um, in Sheffield as well. It's worth flagging Louise Castle in our diocese as well, who does a lot with her healing ministry. Um, mm. She's also written an article for Next uh, Network magazine at Christmas, sort of focusing on that. And I know it's mm. it's something that's been well received in this diocese, and it's had a, a huge impact on yes, a lot of people. Yeah. Yes, I met her not long ago. We, um, I was I was leading a, a session for um, members of churches who were looking into the healing ministry. Um, so I was talking very much about the importance of preparation, um, the importance of rooting it clearly in scripture there are biblical imperatives for a healing ministry and and of course um our own uh archbishop's report which is now 10 years old Mm. or more um which which, uh documents the the ways in which churches should be um working in the healing ministry really it's very clear the the guidance it gives um so uh yes so in your own life, in my healing own life. has played a massive part in your ministry, yes. in your role, in yes. your life. Just in, just in my life, yes. Just as much as you want to say about that, mm-hmm. please mm-hmm. fill us in on that. Well, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis uh, in my late 30s. Uh, there was a brain scan. So, you know, for those who think, oh, well, you know, it was probably a misdiagnosis, which I've often been told. It, there, there was a brain scan which happily showed there was a brain present, but also uh, <laughs> also showed the damage already done by the MS and the presence of the MS um, in, in my system. Uh, I was very fortunate in that, for me, it was the slow-moving um, version because sometimes when people have MS, it's very, very fast and quite terrifying, I think. For me, it was more gradual. But bit by bit, it was eating away my independence. So uh, if you want to know more about that, read my book, because that's what it's all about. Um, Long story short, I attended a training weekend for those serving in the healing ministry, along with other members of our healing team at my then parish church. And that was run by the Order of St. Luke the Physician. At the end of that weekend went home, I'd had healing ministry um, from the then national director, Peter, um, with the Reverend, late Reverend Peter Hancock. And um, when I woke up the next morning, it was as though I had a new body. Everything was working. I was used to waking up. John would get up at about six, bring me a cup of tea and my pills, which enabled me to get out of bed without falling flat on my face because I of the dizziness that you often get with MS. Um, this particular morning, I thought, oh, need to go to the loo. 
Now, the usual thing would be I'd roll out of bed onto my hands and knees and crawl into the bathroom next door because that was the safest way. Because the worst time was always when I got out of bed in the morning. And I was just washing my hands and about to go back into the bedroom and I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, there's something different here. And the something different was I was not dizzy. All the cramps and spasms that I was used to be having there were gone. Um, I'd gone to the weekend absolutely exhausted. I'd been struggling following a nasty cold and um, really struggled to get to the weekend. I was full of beans. And as the day progressed, I went to school as usual. And as the day progressed, kept almost pinching myself, you know, things were different. Um, my body was different. And that was it. God had healed me. But the in the interesting thing is, at the service, the, we, we had a healing service at the end of the um, weekend, which was open to anyone. And I was ministering with a retired minister and his wife. And at the end of the service, we just finished the ministering to the people who had been in our line and uh, uh, my vicar came up to me and said Chris I've had a word from the Lord to pray with you I know you've had healing um, with Peter but uh, I've just got a word to pray is that okay and I said yeah fine so I was still standing holding hands with these two people that we'd just been praying um, for some people who hadn't been able to attend so we linked hands and were praying and we remained with our hands linked a guy put his hand very gently on my shoulder and on my head and said, Lord, show Chris exactly what it is you want her to do. And the next thing, I was on the floor, which I love because that's just God's sense of humour. Because you know from the charismatic movement, the whole thing was get them on the floor, you know. It was almost an ego. Well, it was an ego thing for a lot of people who were ministering. And I've I've stood in queues and received ministry and literally felt someone pushing pushing my forehead, you know. Um, but God did it in such a way. I was holding hands with two people. Guy's touch was feather light, and there I was on the floor. <laughs> and he just spoke to me in that moment. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be ordained. I'm just going to put a couple of questions in amongst that, mm. So, or, or, or points, really. Mm. Um, first was you were... Um, having the symptoms of MS, knowing you were ill with MS, oh, not yes, the symptoms, yes. you were ill with MS, and you were involved in a healing ministry. Yes. So I just wanted to touch on how that felt, because I have friends who are, have illnesses, long-term illnesses, yes. and yet continue to pray for people for their oh, yes. healing without themselves being yes. healed. Why and, not? And also, exactly, and also when Peter paid for you, did you feel anything at that time i.e., because, mm. you know, there are miraculous healings where mm. you know. I've mm. known friends who mm. have been healed in like that. And some people, it, you went home and went to bed. So yeah. just yeah. touch on those two things for us. Okay, so praying for other people. Um, healing ministry had been part of our lives for some years prior to my diagnosis. And why would we stop? Uh, and I have to say here, too, uh, it was something like, seven years between me being told of the diagnosis and being healed and I went through all sorts of difficult times in that time which we haven't got time to explore here what kept me going was the ministry I received from 
my church healing ministry team, from friends and family praying with and for me. That's what kept me going and enabled me to continue to do what I loved, which was to teach. Um, that's what kept me positive. Uh, so that's really, really important. So why would I not pray for other people in need and, and share that love and yeah, and the second Grace question, God. did you feel anything, particularly when Peter prayed for you? What I often felt um, when others had prayed for me, just this sense of peace and, and um, strength, inner strength, not physical strength, because I really was not aware that anything had happened other than this wonderful experience of God when I landed on the floor later um, until the next morning. That was when I knew something had changed. I think the the quick transformation as well is what's so interesting and mm. uplifting about that story. So, you know, you mentioned about going for the healing ministry and overnight you were transformed. It, yes. You know, it reminds me of the Bible passages where Jesus heals someone and it says literally, and they were healed later that day or yes. that same day sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't a gradual thing. It happened no. just like that. No. And that's the amazing thing about the way God works in us and for us. I mean, if I look back over those six or seven years... He could have healed me at any moment. He could have healed me before I was even diagnosed and knew that it was MS that was causing the problems. But I believe that every time we pray for healing, for somebody, for ourselves, whoever, God answers that prayer. He just doesn't do it always in the way we want. And I know that over those years, God was answering prayer. He was giving me the inner strength. Um, he was helping me through. He was walking that path of pain with me. Um, and also he was preparing me for what he wanted me to do. Uh, there were an awful lot of rough edges that needed knocking off. And, and um, the, the MS helped that. So if we come to ordination, you, you said this helped to inspire you to ordination. Is that fair to say? Uh, it didn't help me to inspire me at all, no. Um, I had the whole thing about ordination of women was going on in the background at that point. We hadn't reached the, the point where we had the green light. Um, and uh, several people had said at different times to me, oh, Chris, you ought to be one of those who go forward for ordination. And um, they'd been odd things. I had a really strange experience in church one Sunday. We were in the midst of communion. Guy was up at the altar, our, our vicar. And as I looked up midway through the Eucharistic prayer, I didn't see Guy, I saw me. It was so weird. I, you know, what, what's going on here? And God gave lots of nudges over a period of about three years and I batted them all away because for goodness sake, there's no way, you know, the women who would be called to ordination in those early days were certainly not going to be people like me. Um, and so I really genuinely thought it was my mind because obviously I, being the person I am, I was very much active in praying for and, you know, working towards the ordination of women, but not for me, never for me. I never imagined it for me at all. And so this point in the service where God laid me out on the floor and sort of stuck his finger on me and said this is what I want you to do are you going to do it and I said yes I don't know and in fact I can remember I basically said to him I don't know how it's going to happen Lord but 
if you want it to happen, I guess it'll happen, you know, over to you in your strength, not mine. Because they weren't ordaining women. We hadn't got the green light at that point. In fact, when I went through the whole of the selection process, I had to go through as a deacon. I could not write priest. Because it wasn't possible. So with that journey, with that miraculous healing, mm. the, the ministry that you'd taken on and all this stuff, what brought you to the point of writing the book? What, what was the catalyst? It's something that you were thinking, I'll do that, I'll do that, or was it just you, again, you just woke up in this morning saying, and said to John, I'm going to write this down. What, what, how did bit that of come both. about? Oh, bit right, of both, okay. really. Um, over the years, I've shared my story. Um, I've shared it in churches. I've shared it at conferences. Um, it, I've written it for our magazine, our, the Order of St. Luke magazine. Um, and people have said again and again, Chris, you have to you have to write this in a book. You have to get this out there. But producing a book is an expensive process, and I never, frankly, had the cash to to throw away because that's with a little book like this, that's what you're doing. You can't expect to get your money back. You know, it would be another real miracle for me to ever get back what it's cost me to do it. Um, so it always kind of sat on the shelf. And I, yes, I would share God's wonderful intervention in my life whenever I could because it encourages and helps others but writing the book was one of those pipe dreams really but when my mother died in 2020 I inherited some money from her and I knew then the first thing I had to do with that money was to write a book and publish it and that's what I did that's a, that's a fantastic legacy yes 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 Chris, so much, thank you so much for sharing this story. We always come, as you know, at the end of these things to ask a few other questions. Now, yes. I don't know whether we want to go down the books route because I suspect, <laughs> I suspect you're fairly well read and you have fairly strong opinions on books. So no, what? Actually. No, no. Well, well, yes to the first one, no to the second. <laughs> What's on the bedside table at the moment then? Well, I've brought one with me, oh, which I'll go. show you in a minute because you've got to look at it. And being elderly and forgetful, I've brought the proper titles of the others. You've written I'll, them down. I've that's written them the down. first person that's ever, because you knew this question was coming. Was, well, yes, I did. Having listened to all your podcasts, and I thought, no, I'm going to. I'm not relying on my faulty memory because I'll get the name wrong or something. You did your homework. That's good. Well, I'm an ex-teacher. Come yes, on. Yes, I was going to say yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one that I'm reading at the moment and it's taking quite a while because I've got macular degeneration so reading books is no longer an easy thing for me um, I'm having to to do more and more on my um, Kindle books of yeah sort, yeah but this one it's called Finding the Mother Tree and it's by a lady called Suzanne Seward as uh, Seamart sorry and she's um, from British Columbia mm -hmm. in Canada uh, it's a fantastic story. I've struggled with it at times because I'm not scientifically minded and there's a lot of science in there. But basically, she worked for um, a logging company and over time, she came to realize the connection that exists between trees. And there's this fungal network under the earth which connects trees to trees to trees and it's now she through extensive work and research she's actually proven this and how there is such a thing as a mother tree um that feeds 
her offspring and others as well. I mean, one of the wonderful things, and I think there's lovely parallels between us as human beings and how we should be mm. and the way these trees operate, where they will share resources. So um, say a pine is sharing water with a birch and the birch is sending back some sort of chemical things to help the pine fight off some insect. That's extraordinary. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing book. Uh, if you're like me, it'll take you a while because you've got to stop and think now exactly what does that mean? And, and you know, because as I say, I'm not a scientist. Great book. Um, the other one is more personal. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was written by the former vicar of St. James in Lower Hutt, New Zealand, where, where I serve when we're out there. He's retired now, but he had a wonderful pilgrimage to the Holy Land a few years ago, and it's called Peter's Pilgrimage. Um, I've always wanted to do a pilgrimage to the Holy Land myself, never got to it yet. So uh, I've been seeing it through his eyes, and, and that's been lovely too. Fantastic. Yeah. Now you do a lot of travelling back and forth to New Zealand. Back and forth to New Zealand, yes. When you're on the plane, are you listening to music, or are you reading, or are you bit just... Of, bit of all bit sorts. Of, yeah, what sort of music It's a long, to? long journey. It's a long journey. Oh, Into, hang on about the music. You've in, got to have a look at this book. Oh, Into Dubai and Out Again, is it, or...? When you fly to New Zealand, or which way do you go? Dubai. I know, which no, way do you go? Singapore, you, Singapore, if I can. Sorry, yes, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. This one is Life Journey by Mary Fleeson. Just take a look at that, at the illustrations. I know I can't show your It's great radio, this. this. It's great radio, <laughs> it's great radio, but you two can see it. Oh, different, um, different fonts for Bible readings. Yeah, she is great. just amazing. So as, as a resource for your prayer, for your meditation, just to dip into, you can open it almost anywhere. And just, just read the the um, scripture verses, the the prayer, the little um, meditative piece that you'll put in. It's all. It's very Celtic. Yes. Um, tell us again the name of it, Chris. It's called Life Journey: A Call to Christ-Centered Living, and it's by Mary Fleeson. And I think. Let me just check. It's Eagle, by the looks of it. Yes, Eagle Pub Publishing Limited. Fantastic. And just seeing it there, it's a great, beyond just having a Bible verse just in a plain format, but how visual has made it and how sort yeah. of illuminating things. Really and the thing is, with her, with her pictures, you can look at it, and yes, you've got an overall impression, but every time you come back and look at it, you see something you new. See something yeah, new. It's, the, it's just fan fabulous. And of course, it's it's Celtic in, in inspiration there, so it connects for me. Sorry, back back to the music. No, no, I just uh, 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 music when you're traveling. Um, all sorts. I like classical. I like jazz. I like folk. Nice. And of course, I love Fisherman Friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have I, to ask. So yeah, you get. Oh no, I've stood on the of the 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 years that we used to go to Cornwall all the time Port mm. Isaac Port Gibbon Port that sort of area was yeah. one of our favourites so yes yeah, standing on that uh, harbour wall listening to those guys sing yeah. well before they were famous we were oh, yes. trying to say that's yes. great great really yeah. great times yeah. I have to ask about dogs um, dogs I mean obviously you're a fellow dog lover do you have a favourite breed at all the mongrel I love mongrels they are just dogs. so quirky oh they are just so quirky and and different we had one once um when the kids were little his father was a basset and his mother was a medium-sized 
terrier cross something or other with a long oh, silky cloak coat and spike. <laughs> she stood about so high. Um, so interesting because the basset was about so high. And Heinz, as we called him, came out looking like one of those Tupperware slot-together dogs. Can you remember those, Paul? You know, where you've got a head, a body, a tail? Yeah. Yep. yep. Well, that's what our Heinz looked like. He, he was strawberry blonde with a, a coat rather like a terrier, that wiry coat, long tail, terrier face, basset body and legs. And the character, ah, oh, he was a fantastic dog. Quite a combination. Yes. Um, I will just quickly just jump back to Cornwall because it's always been a special place in my family sort of history. We've always gone growing up and mm. still been going recently with my mum and sister around Carbis Bay area sometimes. Yeah. Um, you're going to make mum very jealous now because she is a fan of Daphne du Maurier, who yes. you were saying before we started, you've met. Oh, met, chatted with, yes, Um she and Lord Browning lived not very far from us. I, as I said, I grew up at Towerdreth. Towerdreth was her uh, local shopping centre in those days when we had a lot of shops in the village. Uh, it's where she came to have her hair done. Regularly meet her on, on the beach, walking her dogs. Um, and she was a very approachable, chatty, lovely lady. Um, as I remember her as a kind of teenager um, and younger Uh and of course, uh, one of her latest uh, later books, um, House on the Strand, was based on Tywardreth because Tywardreth means House on the Strand. And uh, the railway that she uh, describes and this plays a central part to that story uh, ran along the bottom of the field just, just adjacent to our estate where I grew up. And just finally for me, from Winston Gray and Poldark. Is that... Oh, Poldark. Mm. Read it in its original, watched the original film. But, oh, my goodness, this latest version. Oh, yes, definitely. Every, every, <laughs> every episode, Why? every Where episode. Where are you going with this? <laughs> <laughs> Chris, it's been fabulous to have you here. Thanks so much for coming into Church House. It's been great. Uh, informative, uh, spiritual, it's been a, a great time with you. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you for your you. activism as well. With, thank uh, you for letting you know, me come. Fighting for women's yeah. rights. That's Absolutely. Really Keep on keeping on, as they say. <laughs> um, words of grace at sheffield.anglican.org is our email address. And um, coming up to Christmas, uh, we've got a couple more to record, I think, and then our Christmas special. Um, we've got Eleanor Robert Shaw next. We have. And who I'm trying to persuade to bring her dog in, but I think she might not be well behaved, apparently, in church. What, well, Eleanor or the dog? <laughs> Both. The dog. Both. <laughs> 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 Mackie will come visit whenever you like to invite him because oh, visiting, new pla he, yeah. because visiting new places is, is just what we do with him. Well, bring him to church house. By all means. We will do. Yeah, bring him into church house. Take him in the comms room. You will be fussed over for hours. Oh, he'll love that. All right, sorted. All right, see you soon, Ben. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Take Bye-bye.